Welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today we are recording our first podcast with everyone working remotely and recording from their homes. As you may have noticed, we are an episode behind with the podcast due to everything going on in the world. At Colgate, students are now taking courses online, and there's just a few students who remain on campus because uh, they can't travel to their homes. Um, This is also the first episode where we wanted to bring back to the program a previous guest. Robert Garland, the Roy D. and Margaret B. Wooster Professor of the Classics, is with us today to discuss the history of pandemics and plagues in the ancient and medieval world. You might remember Professor Garland as this podcast's first guest back in October. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to take a trip back in time to good old 2019 and catch up. Um, Professor Garland is an expert on Greek religion, Greek urban development, Greek society and social values, and Athenian topography. He also has an uncanny knack for finding the threads between antiquity and the modern world. And he is a well-respected scholar on the lives of everyday people in the ancient world. A prolific author, Professor Garland has published 14 books and dozens of journal articles. Professor Garland has produced several online classes for the Great Courses Lecture Series. His newest, which is coming out very soon, is titled The Greek World, A Study of History and Culture. His most popular course is called The Other Side of History, Daily Life in the Ancient World. And he has a forthcoming book uh, slated for publication in May titled How to Survive in Classical Greece. Professor Garland has also penned two TED-Ed video productions that together have more than 8 million views on YouTube. Professor Garland, welcome back to 13. Thank you very much, Dan. It's a delight to be with you again and with Colgate again. We're still all together, right? That's right. And, and you are recording uh, from your home in Brooklyn? That is correct, yes. Right. Well, thank yes. you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. So let's jump into our 13 questions. Okay. And the first here is, uh, what plagues or pandemics or uh, the like do we know about in classical antiquity and the Middle Ages? We know quite a lot about um, epidemics due to a series of sources, beginning with Homer. Um, For anybody at Colgate who has read the Iliad, um, you will be familiar with the fact that the poem opens with a description of a plague. The very first scene in the book is of the Achaean, the Greek army, which is suffering from a plague that has been raging for several days. The explanation of the plague is that Apollo has been offended because Agamemnon, the captain of the Greek army, has abducted um, a girl who is the daughter of the priest of Apollo, and therefore Apollo is angry. So that's the official explanation, so to speak. It's an offense against the gods, which has caused the plague. And Apollo has taken action. He is a god of healing as well as a god of plagues. He's taken action by inflicting a plague upon the Greeks. That said, it makes perfect sense 
that the Greek army should be afflicted with the plague at this point because it's been uh, besieging Troy for many years. And if an army is in that condition, it would be the case that something like a plague would be likely to break out. And we know of this from many other occasions. Mm -hmm. um, it's very unhealthy conditions, of course, to be in siege warfare. Um, in addition, of course, um, anybody who's read the book of Exodus knows that we encounter the 10 plagues of Egypt, which again, according to the author of Exodus, are due to the wrath of the Lord, uh, who is incensed because the Pharaoh does not allow the Hebrew people to worship him. Now, these are obviously um, not, so to speak, historical, but they nonetheless provide us with insight into the fact that plague was a pretty prevalent occurrence in the ancient world, even if we only hear about it rarely. And the reason we only hear about it rarely is because it was so prevalent, nobody really bothered to write about it, except for Thucydides. And Thucydides, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, gives us a masterly account of the progress of the plague that afflicted Athens in the year 430 BCE during the first year of the Peloponnesian War. So he is a wonderful um, source for information on all fronts regarding the plague. I mean, he didn't have what we call today big data, so he couldn't progress. He couldn't, he couldn't give an account of the progress of the disease and of its um, curve and so forth. But nonetheless, he, he touches on many other aspects. And I, I'd like to talk about that if the questions lead us in that direction later. Um, in addition, we know of several other plagues which took place um, in the ancient world. There was the Antonine Plague, so-called, which broke out in 165. That was probably smallpox. And it lasted for about 15 years. It's called the Antonine Plague because it was under the rule of the Antonine emperors that it mm. took place. And then the Plague of Justinian, um, which broke out in 541 and lasted intermittently until 750. It particularly oh. affected Constantinople, a, a port city, obviously. And ports are particularly vulnerable to plague because, you know, they bring in bacteria and viruses and so forth from other places and the population is not prepared for it and so mm. forth. And um, we're going to include the Middle Ages. So there's the Black Death of 1348. Uh, that was the bubonic plague and the Plague of London in 1665, which um, probably carried off about 100,000 people from the capital. So um, those are the major incidents of plague that we can talk about, although plague and other such epidemics would have occurred pretty much on a annual basis um, with varying degrees of severity in the ancient world, certainly, and I think as well in the medieval world. Hmm. So how do we know about these things? I know you mentioned, you know, Homer and, and some of the early uh, works. Is that how we know about most of these plagues through what was written at the time? Or is it archaeological? Or It tends to be um, if we have a firsthand account. Um, archaeology doesn't really give us much evidence about um, plague, uh, certainly not in the ancient world. Um, obviously, there were mass graves 
but these have not generally come to light. So we can't really um, learn a lot from archaeology. But as I've just mentioned, we do have Thucydides, and his account of the plague is really the first account that we have in literature um, that really is what we might call clinically accurate and also provides an extraordinary, um, insightful description of the effects on social behavior. Mm. which I think is um, something that we obviously are concerned of today, concerned with today. Um, we also have from antiquity, of course, Sophocles. And um, we have two plays by Sophocles, which um, deal with the plague to some degree. Uh, first of all, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, a plague breaks out in Thebes at the beginning of the play. Why? Because there is a undetected murderer living in Thebes. The Greeks believed in pollution very strongly, miasma, and this could be caused if you had a person like that, somebody who has committed murder, who is living among you and is polluting you, is, is therefore causing, well, as Sophocles describes it, women miscarry, crops don't grow, uh, livestock die, and so forth. And equally in the Antigone, um, some of you may have seen April Sweeney's recent production, terrific um, production of the play. That is caused, the plague there at the end of the play, not a plague, but the rejection of sacrifice uh, because a body lies unburied. So again, we get the, um, the sort of the divine explanations uh, functioning there. So both Thucydides and Sophocles give us descriptions of what it would have been like to experience a plague. Uh, for the Antonine plague, which I mentioned um, broke out in the second century CE, uh, we have the medical writer Galen, uh, who was one of the most prolific and significant writers on medicine in the ancient world. And um, we have for Justinian's plague, a historian called Procopius, but he's actually copying Thucydides to a large degree, so he's not terribly useful. <laughs> um, when we get to the Black Death, we have a Sienese uh, chronicler uh, called Agnolo di Turo del Grasso, and, and he was um, a very unfortunate. Five of his children died in the plague, as well as his wife, but he survived, oh. and he gave an account of it. Um, the Italian writer Boccaccio, who wrote the Decameron. The Decameron is sort of based on um, events in the period of the Black Death, 1348. There are 10 writers, that's why it's called the Decameron, or rather 10 storytellers in the book, and they are entertaining themselves, so to speak, while the Black Death is raging by mm. telling stories. Um, so he's also a very important source. And then my absolute favorite is Daniel Defoe, who wrote a journal of the plague year, the plague being the plague that I mentioned that broke out in London in 1665. Defoe was only, Defoe, I should say, was only a child at the time, so he's not writing actually as an eyewitness, but he, he takes the persona of an eyewitness, an adult, and writes about it afterwards. And it's an incredible account, hmm. um, which I think is the first time in literary history where we can really um, get an insider's view of what it was like to be experiencing the plague. And so those are really the main sources we have mm. right up until, you know, 
19th, 20th century. It makes me wonder too, are there church sources from those times? Like I think about like the Catholic church, did they keep a lot of records about those things? Do you mean records of? During the plague, like was there, I, I don't know if there's any kind of, it seems like they were intimately involved a lot with the care and things like that. So I, I just wonder. I'm not aware of them keeping any um, records, so to speak. I mean, when it comes down to the um, um, the plague of London, then weekly um, bills were published, which noted how many people died in each parish. So they were kept by the church. I see. Of course, this was the um, the Protestant church in England right, right, at that time. Right. Um, but it was the church because they, you know, would deal with burials. Hmm. And so they would keep records of burials <clears throat> in each of the 97 parishes that constituted the city of London. Hmm. So what were the, the causes of these ancient plagues? Well, I think that the causes were much the same as the causes are today. Um, and I would say that really there are two main causes. Um, one is urbanization. That is to say, people living in close proximity to one another um, and having lots of contact with each other. And secondly, it would have been also international trade and movement, bringing in cargoes which were infected and so forth. So in other words, it's a consequence of an interconnected world, very largely. And I think that's the same today as it was certainly back in the Middle Ages. Um, Thucydides says that the plague was thought to have originated in what he calls Ethiopia, not exactly the same as the country today, but certainly North Africa, in other words. Hmm. And um, similarly with these other plagues, the Roman plagues I mentioned, they too were thought to have come from what we would call the Middle East today. So generally, trade and density of population. In the case of the plague of Athens, the Athenian population that lived in the rural areas had recently moved into the city to protect themselves against the Spartans, the Peloponnesians, who were ravaging their land. And because Athens did not have a, a very strong military, it could not um, defend its territory. So on the orders of the leading statesman of the day, Pericles, it was decided that every person living in the country should retreat to the walls, evacuate and retreat to the walls. That, Thucydides says, doubled the population. And oh. it doubled it almost overnight. So the, the consequences in terms of the, um, what this meant for what we would call, you know, sanitation and water supply and all that kind of thing were, were absolutely disastrous. Hmm. Um, so it was those extremely unhygienic conditions in the city that was one of the principal factors why that plague took place. Hmm. And um, so I would say really trade, international trade and putting people in very close proximity you get something that comes, a virus, and you get a perfect storm, so to speak. 
Can you talk a little bit about the spread of these things? Was it rapid? Was it, did they realize all of a sudden that certain things were causing the spread? Like, did they understand about the boats coming into port or did, you know, were the people on these boats, boats cognizant of what was going on or was it like, Oh, this is magic. This is terrible. This is the God's work. Well, there was certainly the, if we go back again to the, the, um, the plague, the great plague in Athens, which I'm sort of concentrating upon here. Um, there was a belief um, that, in some sense, this was due to the gods. There was an oracle, for instance, that had been published that people knew about, that was circulating at the time, saying that the the Pelagic Wall should not be occupied, and this meant that sort of a, a space around the Acropolis. In other words, people shouldn't inhabit it, and apparently, it was inhabited. And so people pointed to this and they said, well, that's the reason why we're experiencing the plague. It's all due to the gods. And that explanation, of course, is present, as I mentioned um, a moment ago, with regard to the plagues of Egypt. It was an offense against the Lord that the Pharaoh had committed by not allowing the Hebrews to worship. Um, Then there was another explanation, which um, we also see today, and that is that it was a conspiracy. Mm. Um, there was a belief in Athens that the, the Spartans had poisoned their drinking wells. In other words, this, uh, this was all part of a deep plot uh-huh. um, by Athens's enemies uh, using a particularly insidious form, namely biological warfare. And um, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure you have heard all sorts of rumors about where oh, yeah. this might have originated. And certainly those ideas were already current in antiquity. Oh. And um, the other explanation I would put, I would call it the, the and forgive me for using this explanation, the filthy foreigners explanation of why plagues are current. That is to say, For instance, at the time of the Black Death, it was believed that Jews were poisoning the water supply, etc. So any any scapegoat could be used as well at this time to justify uh, or to explain what was happening. Now, I, I don't know that that happened in Athens. We don't have the evidence for that. But I've always wondered, because Athens had a very large foreign population, whether Anybody was saying, oh, you know what it is? It's those Phoenicians, those non-Greeks who have brought it here. And they're the people responsible. There's always a desire to somehow point the finger. That's right. And this familiar. was certainly, you know, I mean, calling it the China virus and so forth. Mm. Um, and this was certainly true as well in antiquity. Wow. So what exactly uh what did physicians of the time do did how did they go about treating uh, these different illnesses well thucydides tells us that the phoenician uh, sorry the phoenicians the physicians were <laughs> among the most to suffer because they came into greatest contact most frequent contact with the diseased and as today, I mean, this, this moves me greatly, Dan, because it's, it's clear that the, prof- the profession of medicine from antiquity onwards has been one of service, mm. has been one of, of putting yourself at risk. And this was clearly the case 
all the way back to the fifth century BCE. Thucydides makes a point of saying right at the beginning of his account that the people who were affected most in the largest numbers were the physicians. Um, Thucydides is a realist and he knew that not every physician was going to put himself at risk, and no women of course, uh, as physicians, but he I think understood that their sacrifice was, um, was unique among mm. the population. And today I think um, as of course we give tribute to the um, women and men who are putting their lives at risk. I mean, back then, of course, they didn't know. I mean, nobody knew anything about why this disease was spreading. And um, they could take no precautions. Thucydides makes that very clear. There was nothing that physicians could do that made any difference whatsoever. And I think that was largely true, even at the time of the Great Plague in London as well. I mean, there was all sorts of crackpot ideas about how you could avoid the plague. For instance, eat garlic, smoke tobacco, um, be around smoke, burn things so that there's a lot of smoke in the house, that kind of thing. Nobody understood what was causing it. Mm. And in fact, um, there was a belief that somehow um, dogs were the cause and cats and consequently, all dogs and cats were killed in oh, the city. Wow. And in fact, that was the worst thing to have done because cats kill rats and it was the rats that were carrying the fleas oh. and it was the fleas that were the cause of the virus. And I'm sure many things were done in antiquity and in the time of the Black Death and later that had absolutely no useful effect whatsoever. But you know, to answer your question, I think, Physicians were at a complete loss. It must have been extremely difficult to be a physician at such a period uh, just to watch your patient die. And all you could do really was perhaps to offer them some words of comfort. I don't know. I, I can't imagine how it must have been to be in that profession at that time. I mean, was hand washing even a thing back then? Like that was, was that even known to help prevent disease? Probably not, right? I, 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 <clears throat> I've often thought that. I wouldn't have wanted to eat a meal in antiquity. <laughs> um, on the other hand, you know, there weren't chemicals on your, on your whatever you were eating. And the other thing is you would have developed a pretty strong stomach um, early on in your life so mm. that many bacteria that would affect us today wouldn't have had any effect on you in antiquity. Huh. Um, I did see that there in the time of the black, oh, sorry, in the time of the Great Plague, people were um, washing coins in vinegar. Um, that shows some awareness that, um, uh, you know, a disease can be transmitted by contagion. But I don't know that contagion was understood in antiquity. I've not found any evidence of it. I think it only was recognized probably in the 17th century. I'm, I'm not a medical historian, but... Um, I think that that is probably the time when people first realize that if you touch something that has been touched by an infected person, uh, you could catch the disease. Hmm. So what was the mortality rate of, of these various plagues? How bad? Well, well, you know, this is very difficult to determine because um, we, as I said, you know, we don't, we don't have big data. 
Um, so we can only guess. But and 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 let me just add that to to that. You know, if you'd been an Athenian in four thirty, um, you couldn't. You would not have had a sense as we have today of you know the curve and, mm. and flattening the curve and and so on. You would only have been able to observe that. Oh my gosh, three people in the next door house have just died of the plague. Um, and a week later, the house next door, just one person dies or something like that. But it is estimated that between a quarter and a third of the population of Athens died. So what does that mean? Well, again, we don't know what the population of Athens was, but that could mean somewhere between 50 and 80,000 people. And, you know, that's out of a population of, you know, 200,000 or plus, say. So that is colossal. That is a colossal mortality rate. Mm. It's estimated, but I think it's not implausible. Thucydides got the plague. He mentions this characteristically in just a single line. He said, I had the plague, but I recovered from it, and I saw others. Wow. suffered from the plague you know that's very greek the greeks even though they invented tragedy they were also very <laughs> stiff upper lip just like the british i like to think <laughs> um so and and by the way pericles a man who initiated the policy that athens should retreat within its walls and bring in all the people from the countryside um he lost his common law wife and his two sons to the plague so you know wow. we just have anecdotal evidence on this and you know, you wonder: Did Sophocles suffer from the plague? Did did um, Socrates suffer from the plague? You know, it's not mentioned, but we wouldn't expect it to be mentioned because you know it's not the sort of thing that people parade. Right. It, it it wasn't a um, a culture that placed any particular attention on um, you know revealing that sort of information. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think we've reached the point today in our culture that. We all know of somebody who at least knows of somebody who has been affected by COVID-19. Yeah. And I suspect that if it isn't the case, that we all know someone very mm. soon. Um, so, I mean, ju just other cases, you know, Justinian's plague, it's thought that between 25 and 50 million people were affected. Um, and the Black Death or the Great Mortality, as it was called, it's thought that a third of the population of Europe, with the one exception of Poland, Poland apparently didn't suffer from the Black Death, um, was carried off by it. And, um, you know, we should also bear in mind that how terrifying this was for people without any sense of why it was happening, so to speak. And it was inevitable that they mm. should sort of seek out religious explanations. Um, and as for the um, um, the plague of London, I you know I, the official title, the official number was sixty five thousand five hundred and ninety six, I think. But it's thought that the and 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 Defoe says he thinks that the real number was a hundred thousand. Yeah. Wow. And um, then you get the issue of you know when um, Columbus goes to the New World and wipes out ninety percent of indigenous people. It's estimated. Yeah. So I guess that goes to a little bit of my the next question here, and that is uh, who were the most vulnerable? And I know you mentioned 
um, doctors or, you know, physicians at the time. And it sounds like, um, you know, were there, was this something that affected everyone, you know, kings and queens right. down to, you know, commoners? Um, is this right? Was it I, I'd love to, Dan, I'd love to know the answer to that question. This is one of the things that Thucydides doesn't tell us. Mm. He doesn't say that, you know, the elderly were the most vulnerable, anybody over the age of 70 or 65 sure. or whatever it might be. Um, he doesn't say people with pre-existing medical conditions. Mm. Um, was it the very young? Was it, you know, I mean, people who were most risk always were the very young and not so much the elderly, because the elderly had kind of, you know, if you've got to the age of, when I say elderly, um, I mean anybody over the age of 45, mm. because life expectancy was so much lower in antiquity. Mm. But if you survived to be 45, there was a jolly good chance you'd go on to be about 60, you know, and 60 was a very great age. Ripe old age. Ripe old age, indeed. <laughs> we actually have a book by a writer called Lucian who records the long livers, long lived people, in other <laughs> words, and it's anybody over the age of 80, for heaven's sake, in the oh, whole wow. of whom he's ever heard about, <laughs> you know. Um, so I wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's got to be de guesswork. I, I just add, in addition to the physicians, I would say good people, because Thucydides mentions that, you know, that, that very decent people continued to visit their relatives and people who were sick. And of course, they were much more likely to suffer from the disease, fall ill and die than people who just said, well, I've got no intention of putting myself at risk. Oh. <clears throat> so that's about as far as we can go, I think. Oh, oh so by the way, about the poor, simply to say that Defoe says that it was the poor that the plague in London affected most of all. Okay. All right, and probably due to sanitation. Due to sanitation, yeah. exactly, yeah. So, you know, I, you talked a little bit about the killing all the dogs and cats and uh, and burning stuff, but it, what were some of the other precautions that people took um, to try and, you know, protect themselves? Well, uh, surprise, surprise, in the ancient world, there were no um, masks. Uh, there were no disinfectants. People did not wash their hands. Um, they couldn't practice social distancing, even if they'd wanted to, because, you know, they were all together in very close quarters. Um, the one thing we are told is that the Peloponnesians who were, you know, they used to do annual raids in Athens, burn down olive trees, burn down houses after the Athenians had abandoned the countryside. They stayed out of Attica. Oh. They, knew, they knew not to go into Attica. <laughs> So um, they could actually, you know, they did do social distancing, so to speak, if you call <laughs> less that. Less pillaging. On the part, less pillaging, yeah. exactly. An army sort of staying away from um, another. Um, but otherwise, there was nothing people could do. I mean, it was worse than in any period of history because people were already living cheek to jowl and in conditions that were very insanitary and just much more so as a result of the plague of course so i mean you just could not keep away and people had to go to the you know to buy things or whatever they would have been um mingling um so i was thinking about that expression herd immunity yes you come across that yeah I mean, yeah sure maybe 
some Athenians said, well, you know, we've got to practice herd immunity here. It'll be just the ones who survive, survive, and the rest will go to the wall, so to speak. But if I may, may just sort of build on that a little bit, of course, Athens being a democracy made it so much more difficult because I was just thinking the other day that, you know, meetings of the assembly were of approximately five to 6,000 people. The citizen body was about 30,000. And every time it met, it was probably about, you know, one in five, one in six came. And all those people would be standing together. So every time the, um, assembly met, you would be next to people who would undoubtedly be carrying the plague. And Athens being a democracy and functioning in that way would have exacerbated the spread of the disease. Um, I mean, you know, I'm intrigued that in the, in, in, in Exodus, we're told that before the angel of death strikes the houses of the um, Hebrews, they are to paint blood on the lintels and the, um, the, the cross of the, um, not, not in the form of a cross, but, you know, sort of so that the angel death will pass over. Pass over. Now, that's a kind of um, antidote or what do you want to call it? I mean, you know, you may say it's just religious or whatever it might be, but it's a kind of awareness that certain places need to sort of signify that they are practicing something separate or the people there, are whatever. But it, 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 it's got something of it in terms of trying to find some measure to protect yourself. Um, so that's pretty much all people could do. Wow. So what did, <clears throat> what, were, what did the governments do at the time or the authorities? Um, was, was this something that um, they tried to take, or the politicians even? What, what, was the, what was their take and how did they approach it? Well, Back to Athens again, that there was no government as such. There was just the demos, the people. Um, the people were the people of Athens, or the male population over the age of 20, well, 21, really, we can say. And um, so they took decisions on their own behalf, but we don't hear of anything that they did. And I don't think they could have done much either. They mm -hmm. could hardly tell people to self-isolate. That was absolutely inconceivable. Um, they had no means of, um, you know, distributing anything that would help people to avert catching the plague. We do know that the water um, became quickly contaminated in the Piraeus, which is where the plague first arrived, because that's the port city. And as I mentioned, ports are particularly vulnerable. And um, the Piraeus has no fresh water no spring, no springs, no rivers and so forth. And so it became, you know, people catch caught rainwater in cisterns. But what could the what could anybody do? There was nothing people could do. The Deimos was powerless, powerless to um, respond in any way whatsoever. And, um, it, it, you know, the one thing it might have done, and we don't hear about it because Thucydides doesn't mention it, is, you know, to have ensured that um, refuse and so forth was collected and, and done, you know, sent outside, went outside the walls of the city. We don't hear about that, but I don't think that we have any reason to not suppose it wasn't done, if I may put it that way. But there was nothing else the Deimos could, be, could do. And I have to say that this should not be held against it. I think that the Athenian 
democracy was faced with a challenge which was beyond anything we can imagine today. And this is an ancient society. It had no means available. It had no hospitals. Um, it had no sense of quarantine. Um, it just could not respond in any way. Hmm. And um, that is, I think, one of the things that is very sobering about this. You know, this people got through it. In the end, they got through it. And Athens was back on its feet. You know, that's something that is fascinating as well. But to answer your question, there was nothing they could do. And um, this contrasts with the um, result, uh, with, with what happened at the time of the Great Plague, which I think, sorry, the Plague of London, 1665, which I think was the first time that the authorities, so to speak, responded in a very positive way. The Lord Mayor, for instance, passed a number of orders that did in fact, um, I think, help to check the spread of the disease. For instance, houses of people who were infected with the plague were shut up and it was illegal to leave if you had a family member or a servant who was infected with the plague and you had to put a cross on your door, a red cross. Mm. And I think that's the origin of the red cross. Oh. Um, and, um, um, you know, bills of mortality were produced, as I, as I mentioned before, so that you could actually trace where was more dangerous at that time than another place in London. Um, and other measures were introduced. Uh, for instance, the border between Scotland and England was closed. And um, just as, you know, borders are closed today between US and Canada or wherever it might be. Mm. So many measures were being implemented then in response that we see um, echoes of today. But that was the first time, so far as I know, in human history where the authorities, so to speak, and, and, and full marks to the Lord Mayor of London, um, that he did this. And also we're told by Defoe that um, he distributed food to the poor. And it seems that a lot of wealthy people were very charitable as well. So that although the state didn't step in in the way it is, thank goodness, today, and it's, you know, people are getting um, handouts and so forth, which is absolutely what it should be. Um, and there were so many comparable people in London in 1665 who were out of work, who were very poor. And the city did, in fact, distribute charity and it distributed corn for the making of bread. So there was a really impressive response to this disease um, by the Lord Mayor and his council of aldermen. Mm. Um, who were who stayed in London and saw it through and did what they could for the people. So, what was this? Uh, what was the effect on day to day life and I guess social interactions? Were people generally distrustful of each other because of this? Was it? Was there this like long, you know, many years of distrust and you know everyone kind of wondering who's next? Or, well, I'm not sure whether there was. Uh, yes, there must. I mean, certainly. Um, Again, Thucydides doesn't tell us this. Defoe does that. You know, you did. You know, you you did sort of um, become wary of people, um, particularly since in the case of the plague that affected London, which was probably the bubonic plague, um, people could become infected in the space of just a few hours. 
um, they could be perfectly healthy one moment and basically dead the next. Mm. And people, even in the street, you couldn't necessarily tell if they had signs of the plague on them because people would be muffled up, of course. So although there may be signs on their legs, their breasts and so forth, you could well be passing somebody in close proximity. And Defoe is very well aware of that. Um, Thucydides doesn't mention it. Um, he doesn't talk about suspicion among people. What he does say, however, um, is that people became indifferent to morality. Mm. And he uses this expression. He says, people who had concealed what they took pleasure in now grew bolder. In other words, um, there was an increase in, like, in, in, in criminality. Let's call it that. Okay. And that's always something that one has to fear, that it does become a case that people either become forced by circumstance or they take advantage of the fact that people are vulnerable um, to break the law. The law has, you know, is also a victim, of course, at times of plague because um, it becomes very stretched. And um, the longer that a plague lasts or a virus lasts, um, the greater the strain upon services, including the police. Hmm. And uh, it's clear that that happened in 1665. In 430 BCE, there was no police force, but people were not behaving in the way they should have done. And, and what is interesting about, if I may just sort of say this, um, Thucydides' account of the plague follows immediately after something called the funeral speech, which Pericles delivers over the dead in the first year of the Peloponnesian War. And the funeral speech is an extraordinary peon to Athens, to all the high standards for which Athens stood. Um, we do good to others merely for the sake of doing good, not because of any expectation of a reward. Well, it wasn't true, of course, but this was what Athens aspired to. And it's a wonderful, wonderful statement. And after Thucydides ends the speech that Pericles gives, immediately the plague strikes, literally within three sentences. Wow. So it, it shows just how you go from one reality to another. And, you know, I mean, I, I think of that in terms of, you know, I mean, I know this is stupid, but the stock exchange, the stock exchange had reached unparalleled heights. And now it's gone through its biggest descent in, the, in, in a monthly period in, in, in years. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly Thucydides' point as well. You know, we on the one moment, we're sort of riding high, we're confidence and so on and so forth. We think we're wonderful people. And the next, a little finger touches us familiarly on the shoulder and says, wait a second, you've got something yet to learn. Wow. And that I think is, is a, a great point. I think I've gone off Target. <laughs> anyway. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned the stock market because I think that's a good segue into you know the next question about how um, all of these um, these changes and all of this illness and the death uh, in, in the ancient world and how that might have impacted um, the economies of that time, how it changed society. How did how did that kind of reshape their world? Right. Um, do you know? Oddly, um, in the case of the um, plague of 430 of Athens, of course, it um, reduced the population, as I mentioned, by 
perhaps as much as a third, certainly a quarter. Athens went on fighting a war. It continued fighting that war and actually until its defeat in 404 with a brief interval. Um, so on one level, life went on as before. Um, Athens was the head of a maritime alliance, really a maritime empire. The empire, the allies, as they were called, but they were really subject states, they continued to be servile to Athens. They continued to provide tribute. Athens's hold on that um, uh, empire was, was complete. Now, that is probably partly due to the fact that her fleet, I suspect, was unaffected by the plague. Mm. And probably, um, you know, ships did not dock, the, the, the warships, the triremes would not dock in Athens for that very reason. They probably found other places outside to do so. And they were able to maintain control over their empire, um, just as interestingly, at the time of the London plague of 1665, the British Navy was pretty much unaffected by the plague for the same reason. Um, the Navy would not have come close to, uh, to London for that, to avoid becoming infected. And certainly within, oddly, within 15 years, Athens had recovered sufficiently its manpower, its strength, et cetera, et cetera, to make this foolhardy expedition to conquer Sicily. So this is strong testimony to the fact that although Athens was um, reduced to such terrible straits in 430, and the plague, we're told, returned 429, 428, but then it disappeared as mysteriously, so to speak, as it had come. Within about 15 years, Athens was back and brawling for a fight again, and it continued fighting the Peloponnesian War. Um, so economically, it's not clear that it had any particular impact on Athens, but that was largely because it was not as we are, uh, dependent on export-import in, in the same way. She received a, a, a very considerable sum of money in tribute from her allies, yes. and this kept her going. Um, now, other consequences, um, it, it's again difficult to determine. I was just reading an article in the Atlantic Weekly that came out um, a few days ago by uh, Catherine Kelaidis, um, and, and she argued that the plague contributed to the um, demise of Athenian democracy. Well, I would, I would dispute that. Mm -hmm. um, she talks about the decline in what we might call civic values. Um, civic values obviously are always at risk in a period like this, although they can remarkably be resilient and, in fact, experience an upturn. All the volunteers in New York City, for instance, who have come forward um, to help. But actually, Athenian democracy um, was remarkably resilient, and it continued on until the um, period when um, Philip of Macedon basically um, defeated Athens at Chironia in 338, um, and Athens no longer had a foreign policy, although democracy continued to function after that. So I would, I would question that. But um, other consequences, um, I'll just mention that um, the, the Black Death of 1348 led to the end of feudalism because so many people died 
um, that wages for workers increased <laughs> because there were fewer people to do the job. Um, I'm not sure whether that happened in any way in Athenian society. I don't think it could be a slave society, of course. Um, but that is a very interesting consequence of um, the Black Death, um, that in fact it helped to create the modern world in some ways. Well, we are at question 13. Uh, I think it's uh, only appropriate to ask. I was going to ask if you had watched Tiger King, but I understand you haven't. So I, It's uh, been recommended to me. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, now by you, I think. So I oh, think yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think it would be it would be good to just take a moment to talk about um, the similarities and differences between then and now. I guess how you see things that you're so good at thinking about the parallels between um, you know, the ancient world and today. And uh, curious if the, what are the main, um, I guess, the major differences you see between, I guess, how our societies react to this type of, um, right. this type of, you know, challenge? Well, I think the, the, the first thing that strikes me is that uh, if we take the Athenians and the plague, they knew next to nothing about the spread of the disease. Um, I'm sure they understood that being cooped up in the walls made it all the worse. Um, but that's about as far as they could have gone. And, and, and they wouldn't have necessarily understood how any kind of different behavior would have changed things. Thucydides does mention that um, birds and uh, dogs avoided dead bodies, whereas normally birds and dogs, if they saw a dead human body, they would have eaten them, but they didn't. So he understood that there was something, you know, particularly obnoxious. Huh. He doesn't suggest it was contagious about it. So, you know, the Athenians, I, I mentioned before pollution. Pollution was a belief that somehow um, the cause of a virus spreading in the community is, is because you've done something to offend the gods. But that didn't help you to, in any way, avoid it. And I think that the complete ignorance about what to do is what must, or, or what has caused it, must differentiate um, plagues, our experience of coronavirus and any plague almost until the modern era. Um, so people just had to wait it out. They, they couldn't hope that there was, you know, ventilators on the way, there was a vaccine on the way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they just had to wait it out. But that is impressive in its own right, I think. You know, I'm always impressed by people in, ancient, in the ancient world, in the medieval world, just how they got on with things. Mm. You know, I mean, we... We're facing a terrible tragedy today. There's no minimizing it, but I have to say it's nothing like what it would have been in Athens in 430 BCE. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, secondly, as I've mentioned, you know, there's no way to, to sort of chart the progress of the disease. So you would have had very little sense that, oh my God, it's tapering off. Mm. So, so basically one day it's there and the next day it's not, okay? Um, but what it must have been like when it was raging at its highest, I, I think that must have been very terrible because, you know, you wouldn't have had a sense of a curve either of, you know, sort of something going up and then down. 
Um, so you couldn't, without that data, you're even more at a loss to understand um, what this thing really is. Mm. And um, also, you know, you don't know the cause. So in, in some ways it's much more frightening, but at the same time, you're, this is not your first experience, probably. I mean, for most of us, this is absolutely unlike anything we've experienced. The Athenians would have experienced typhus, typhoid, various viral infections, which would have, you know, struck only a small portion of the population. But nonetheless, they knew that was daily reality. And that might have, in some ways, strengthened them as they faced the awfulness of a terror like the plague that struck them in 430. Um, and so I would say those were the, the big differences. Well, that was 13. Thank you so much, Professor Garland, for joining us uh, for this remote recording. Uh, I wish you all the best with your new books coming out and your great courses. Um, I also want to uh, give a special thanks to our listeners for bearing with us as we work to keep the podcast fresh and interesting as, uh, you know, the world copes with this threat of COVID-19. And, you know, I want to um, kind of extend my best wishes to everyone in the Colgate extended family from students and faculty uh, working from home right now to uh, all the university staff that are um, working hard on campus to provide essential services for our students. Um, I, Dan, could I just say something? Yeah, sure. Um, because what you say is very much to my heart. And um, I just, if I could just, uh, just a few words, uh, you know, because I feel doing this for the community is, is something that um, it, it moves me a great deal. And um, I, one of the if, I, if you've got just a couple of minutes. Absolutely. Um, I teach in the great course, Legacies of the Ancient World, got to mention that great course, um, Marcus Aurelius, who probably fell victim to the plague. And he says something, that if I can just read to you, yeah, please for do. the community here. He says, as a unit yourself, you help to complete the social whole. And similarly, therefore, your every action should help to complete the social life. Any action which is not related either directly or remotely to this social end disjoints that life and destroys its unity. Now, I feel that what you are doing here is building that social unit that we are, and that's something that we must keep together. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to, to be part of the community. And I, I send my warmest wishes, indeed my love, to everybody connected with the community. Um, and I thank you, and I thank Colgate for all it has given me, and I wish everybody well, wherever they may be in the world, whether they're locked down in Colgate or whether they're at the Arctic Pole or wherever they might be at this moment. So be well, everybody. Be safe. Well, thank you, Professor Garland. It is an honor to have you on, on the show, um, as always, and uh, uh, I wish everyone well, and as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.